Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're looking in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 32. We'll read all the way down to Deuteronomy 6, verse 9. Verse 32. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you, the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, and you and your son, and your son's sons, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commend you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk with them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that as we look at this text that you would show us Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So over my lifetime, which is pretty short compared to some, I've developed a coping mechanism in order to avoid different situations, different and awkward situations, and that is telling a joke. And I'm so proficient at it that my wife has eventually has labeled me the speaker, has labeled me uh, speaker of the dad, uh, the cheesy dad jokes. Uh, it's bad because my kids are already embarrassed when I start to tell a joke. But I do admit that most of the time, a lot of my jokes, uh, they do go a little too far. For instance, recently. Well, most of you guys know that before I became Presbyterian, I was a Baptist. We grew up Baptist. Uh, that's all we knew. My entire family today is still Baptist. The Baptist world shaped me, and I'm grateful uh, to be a part of that. I met my wife in the Baptist Student Union, uh, so um, um, the Baptist world is ingrained in me. And so, in saying that, I have, over time, made a lot of Baptist jokes, and there's nothing harsh, nothing harsh at all. Please don't take this as me being harsh or anything like that. But it's mostly just casual fun. And I have a few of my Baptist friends who work here in the school. Uh, and so we go back and forth, kind of arguing and discussing infant baptism. And so it's all fun. It's been good fun. So one day Aaron and I decided that we would take our kids to the nearest Baptist church and that we would take them to go ride their bikes. And sure enough, we pulled into the parking lot and the Baptist joke slipped out. And uh, one of my kids picked up on the joke, 
or picked up the joke and looked at me in the straightest face and he said, Daddy, do Baptists believe in Jesus? And I laughed, but then it hit me. I was like, I'm a failure. <laughs> I have failed my kids. <laughs> and I quickly responded, I was like, yes, 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 yes. With this, I, they do, trust me, they do believe in Jesus. And I quickly changed the conversation um, to informing my kids and telling my kids about what the gospel really is. So it allowed me a great opportunity to tell them the gospel. And I say all this because when we, not to tell you or to cause you to stop telling jokes to your kids, but I, I do point out this because we have to see that it is a huge that we have a huge responsibility as parents, grandparents, fellow church members to seize every opportunity that we have to teach our kids and to train them in our faith. When I think back to this story, I continue to play this conversation over and over in my head, thinking about how often I fell in doing that. And as we examine this passage this morning, we'll see that this is significant for us to take hold of as the body of Christ. This, this responsibility that we have to teach and to train our generations. The book of Deuteronomy before us this morning it concludes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, it also concludes the law, the Torah. But for most scholars, this book is probably one of the most significant books of the canon. And there's two reasons. If you look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is actually an interpretation of uh, the first of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Num- and Numbers. It's like an interpretation of those. So if you want a condensed version of the law, you go to Deuteronomy. That's one of the reasons. And second, if you look at it, Deuteronomy is, with Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah, and Isaiah, is one of the four most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. So the Deuteronomy is significant. It's important uh, not only in teaching us the law, but it's also important in shaping. Jesus felt that it's important for him to mention it or to highlight it all throughout the New Testament, along with the other authors. So you see that the message that Moses is relaying here to the people is not only for Israel in their time, but is also for us today. It is a message of faithfulness and responsibility, of love and obedience. And as we dig into these two components, faithfulness and love, we will see that out of it we have a greater appreciation of what God has done, what he has called us to do, and how we can go about completing that work. So this morning, my three points... These are my three points. God commands and we obey. Love of God is what drives us to obedience and obedience and action. So let's look at the first point. God commands and we obey. If you were to take Deuteronomy and divide it into four of Moses' speeches, which we find throughout the book, our passage this morning centers on the holiness and obedience. If you were to follow the opening chapters of, if you would follow the chapters before 
the text we have this morning, you would see that it focuses on Yahweh's faithfulness. So in chapters 1 through 4, we see Moses recounts Israel's history and how Yahweh has guided and delivered his people through their trials, their stubbornness, and has even given them victories. Moses wants the people to know and remember that God has been faithful in keeping his sign, his side of the covenant. And so when we move into our passage this morning, we see that Yahweh now requires that we keep ours. That is, that we obey. We see this in verse 32 when he says this, when Moses writes, To, to do all that, the Lord, that your God commands you. Verse 33, you should walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Verse 1 of chapter 6, that you may do them in the land which you are going over. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, keeping all of his statutes and his command. And then we finally see in verse 3, be careful to do them, which is do the commands. So over and over and over again, Moses is highlighting that we are called to do the Lord's commands. They highlight that Israel needs to do them and to obey what the Lord has called them to do. And if they obey, they live. They thrive. They possess the land. Not only do they possess the land, but the generations after them possess the land. And this goes back to the promise that we see in Genesis 12. So if Israel was to continue in a proper relationship with Yahweh then they must fulfill their side of the covenant agreement. But if you look at these commands, there's something interesting about them. Nowhere does it say that God is going to backtrack or double down on his promises. Nowhere does it say that God is going to negate all that he has said he's going to do if they fail to live up to it. And as we know, we, we, we can read on throughout the Old Testament and we see that, that Israel does fail, right? They do fail in keeping the covenant. But is God? Does God fail in keeping his promise? I think we can agree with that with a no, Right? He continues to faithfully keep and do what he's promised to do. And what does that mean for us then? Are we no different than the Israelites? Are we stubborn just like them? Aren't we quick to worship our jobs, our careers, our children, our idols? Don't we try to fit the life of the church into our daily lives instead of fitting our daily lives into the life of the church? These are all failures that the Israelites struggled with or committed. And these are just about a few examples of our failures. But the point I'm trying to get at is this. Israelite failed over and over and over and over again. And we fail over and over and over and over again. The Lord does not wipe his hands of us. He does not forsake us. 
He does not wave his finger at us and say, I'm done with you. No, he continues to remain faithful to us. He continues to uphold us when we are frail, when we are weak in our faith, when we lack the strength to obey and to endure. Why? A lot of times I find myself asking that same question. Why? Why do you continue to do that? God? Because he loves us. And he gave up his son for us. And that's what drives us to want to obey and do what he commands. His love. His love for us. That brings us to our second point. The love of God drives us to obey. God's faithfulness towards the Israelites as well as to us is, is out of his perfect, unadulterated, undivided love for us. And since he loves us, his response, our response is to love him and to obey him. Verse 3 and verse 4, Moses writes this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And we have to take these two verses together to understand this. Because they're telling us two things, two important things here. One, that our devotion and our allegiance lies with no one, no thing, except our triune God. Him only. As one commentator puts it, he says this, He, God, was therefore to be the sole object of Israel, the sole object of our, if you want to put us in there, faith and obedience. He is our object of faith. He is our object of obedience. And the second is this, this verse, these two verses echo the fullness of God's love and devotion for us. And to us. So we're challenged to love God with our heart. What does that mean? Our set. Our, 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 the seat of our mind. Our emotions. Our soul, which is the source of our life and our vitality. Our being and our might. Our strength. In other words, we are called to love God in our fullness. In our entire being. So when we come to him, we do not come to him with a sense of half uh, half-heartedness, our sense of partial devotion. Instead, we come to him in our completeness, our complete being, to honor him, to worship him, to obey him, to love him, to respond to him, to serve him. That's what it means to love the Lord our God, is to give ourselves, all of ourselves, to him, because he is our sole object of a love and obedience and faith. And when we are unable to love God in our fullness, because we do sometimes, it does not change the fact that He continues to love us in His fullness, in His entire being, in His complete self. And this, brothers and sisters, is what drives us to want to obey His commands. 
But you see, sometimes I think we have the tendency to see the law and its demands first before we see God's faithfulness and love. That is why a lot of times we ignore the Torah when we do our devotions because all we see is a list of do's and don'ts, right? And we love the good stuff in the New Testament. We talk about love and mercy and grace. Thinking that somehow love, mercy, and grace, they're absent from the Old Testament, but they're there. They're there. Sometimes we can even reverse the order of how God relates to his people. By placing obedience first in order to gain God's love. Instead of seeing the commands flowing and coming out of God's love for his people. For a long time, I was caught in this warped understanding myself. Growing up, I kind of had a rather odd childhood. My parents divorced when I was really young, and so I had a part-time relationship with my father. I had a stepfather who would occasionally speak into my life, but eventually he kind of lost interest in the faith. And so I was kind of on an island unto myself. I was an obedient son. I did all my, that my parents asked. Or I was really good about hiding my sins. Most of my sins were done in secret. I had older siblings I could blame my sins on so I could get away with. I was sneaky. But I was obedient. I hardly ever got in trouble. But when I moved off to college... And the college I went to was only 45 minutes away. Um, I would still call back and, uh, and talk to my parents every now and then. Uh, but going into my second year of college, I was I, I where when I met Erin. And kind of my life kind of changed. And she's not here this morning, so I can talk about her. Shaking. But I remember after we started dating... My conversation, I would call home to my parents and my conversations would start changing. I remember one conversation with my mom. I was calling her on the phone just to check in with her and see how she's doing. Uh, I was about to hang up and I, I told her, I love you. I'll talk to you later. And that's a common thing to tell your parents, right? You're supposed to tell your parents you love them. It kind of caught my mom off guard. She was like, well, I, 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 love, I love you too. It's kind of an awkwardness. And then we ended. So I went home that weekend because, again, I was a college student, poor, and go home, you get a free meal, and your mom would do your clothes for you. Um, so if you're going off to college, note, take a note. But my mom sat down, we were sitting at the dinner table, we were having this conversation, and my mom leaned over and she said, I, I want to kind of talk about the conversation we just had on the phone about two or three days ago. I was like, what, what do you mean? She's like, Josh, what has gotten into you? I was like, what do you mean what's gotten into me? I, I, everything's going great. I'm involved in the ministry. I've met Erin. She's great. Uh, you love her. You know, she's great. She's going to make me, you know, a better person. And she says, no, it's, it's not that. She's like, what, when you ended the conversation on the phone the other day, you told me that you loved me. And you have never done that before. And then she proceeded to go on and talk about this, that, how that conversation changed her. And she made a joke about it. She said, man, you've been with Aaron for a year, and she's already changing you. 
Has she made you soft? And I was like, yeah, probably she has. But the conversation started going back to, to her childhood, and, and she kind of confessed to me, saying that she grew up in a child, she grew up in a home where her dad or her parents never told her that they loved her. And so I got to think, was this starting to become a generational thing? And so from that point on, I made it a point that every time I call my mom, even to this day, it could be the, the quickest conversation. Five minutes. How are you doing? I always win with, to end the following conversation with, I love you. Because if, if it was a, a generational thing from my mom, then I want to nip it in the bud in mine. I want to be able to tell my kids every day I love them. And I tell you this story because after years of thinking back on this, I've come to a conclusion that even though it was a generational thing where her parents didn't tell her that they loved her, and so she kind of imparted that onto us, I started to realize that I started to find the love and the support not in my parents telling me that they loved me and that they support me, but in how I lived. I spent my life in my childhood trying to earn my parents' love through my obedience. I did well in school to make them happy. Or they ever got in trouble. Not because I didn't want to face the consequences. I mean, we lived out in the middle of the country. I mean, how can you punish me? That's already punishment, right? There's nothing to do. But I didn't get in trouble because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. And I felt like if I kept pleasing them, that they would love me more and love me more. If I failed in any way, then I feared that they they did not love me. And that's what I thought. But that's not what we see here in this passage. Instead, we see a faithful God who completely loves his people. And out of his love for his people. His people obey. And this brings us to our last point. How then does our love for God produce obedience? What does it look like in our actions? So we've already talked about if we obey God out of we are called to obey God out of our love for God, and part of our obedience that we see here in this passage is the model that we, we obey what the Lord commands regarding the family unit. We're called to model obedience in our family as well as in our daily lives. Moses writes this in verses 7 and 9. He says this, You shall teach them your diligently, diligently to your children. And what are them? This is the laws and the commandments. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and shall be as frontlets between your door, between your posts of your house and on your gates. So what he's saying here in these verses is this. In in God's word is to be diligently taught and lived out in our family lives. 
as well as in our individual lives, as we, we live out our lives in this fallen world. This passage makes clear that Scripture should be central in all areas of our life, our family's life, and the life here at Covenant. It should be central. And we see that Scripture kind of backs this up over and over again, talking about you know, the family unit plays a significant role in the teaching and training of future generations. You cannot look in the Old Testament and see that God emphasizes, or you cannot deny that God does not emphasize the work of generational training. That's insignificant. That's important for us to come to grips with, Okay? As one commentator puts it like this, the knowledge of election, of the covenant, and its demands, and of redemption is to be passed on within the family from generation to generation. That is the demand. That is the command. That is what we're called to do. We even see it here in this passage in verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. So fathers and mothers, look at me. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, look at me. The Lord has given you the precious gift of children. You play a significant role in teaching them and training them in Scripture as well as in the doctrines of our faith. You play an important role. Let me give you this statistic. This was done years ago. And this is just for an average home. I don't think it takes into consideration uh, for those who do uh, homeschooling. But listen to this. This guy who wrote this. He says, your home is the number one influence in the life of your child. The average church has a child 1% of that time of his entire life. The home has him 83% of the time. And the school, if they go off to public school, has him 16% of the time. This does not maximize the need of churches and schools, but it establishes the fact that your home is 83% of your child's world, and you, have only, and you only have one time around to maximize the benefit of that. 83%. 83%. So as parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, we need to strive to see that we take advantage of every opportunity that we have to speak Jesus into the next generation. We need to do it. We need to tell future generations about Jesus. Whether it's through family devotions, we provide a family devotion here at Covenant. It's in your bulletin. We provide ways for you to minister to your kids by using those devotions. Maybe it's conversations around the dinner table. Or maybe it's from the rides to and from church. We need to see that these opportunities are ways that we can point our children to Jesus. And we take advantage of those. Do not let Trump trump the conversation at the dinner table. Instead, let Jesus be front and center at what you talk about. 
Trust me, as a parent, I know how difficult this is. We have tried to, be, to have a consistent family devotion time. But it seems like there's always that one kid who wants to talk, who wants to jump up and down, who wants to cry. It's difficult. But don't let these mistakes and these failures keep you from sharing the good news of the gospel with your kids. Just keep trusting. Just keep pushing through and relying on Jesus to work through them. As difficult as it may be, if we believe that God is sovereign, and we believe that God is going to fulfill what he has set out to do, that he is going to take your family devotions, as weak as they may be, as crazy and as chaotic it may be, he's going to take that and use it ultimately for his glory. The fathers and mothers play a vital role in the teaching and training of their children. We as the church body play a substantial role as well. We're called to come alongside the parents in the teaching and training of their kids. This is one of the benefits that drove me to wanting to become Presbyterian. It was the emphasis that we placed on covenant theology. Part of our theology highlights that God is the God, the God that we worship is the God who works through covenant families. But, not also, but not, it's not only covenant families, but he also works through the covenant community, the body, the church, to bring about his purposes of teaching and training the future generation. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12 when Paul lays out spiritual gifts and how those gifts are to be used to benefit the body. And part of the body is our covenant kids. God has blessed you with gifts to be used to minister to our covenant kids. We see this in the vows that we take. Before baptism is a minister to our infants and to our children, you know, Tim stands up here and he says this, Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? And most of the time we respond by raising our hands or saying yes or amen. I was part of a church in Birmingham. Whenever they would ask that question, they would require the congregation to stand up. And I love that because when you stand up in agreement, you look around at everybody and everybody is standing saying that they're going to come alongside and assist you as a parent. That is comforting to a parent to know that. Because parenting is scary. And to know that they have the entire congregation standing saying, I have your back, that provides them the confidence they need to persevere through. We do that. But let's take this vow and let's break it down a little bit. What does it mean when it says to assist the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Well, this is what it means, congregation. Is that not only do we live as godly examples before them, but we teach them. We teach them through Sunday school. We teach them through vacation Bible school. We teach them through children's church. We teach, we, 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 we bring them into worship. 
They sit and they hear God's word. They hear us pray. They hear us sing. They look to their neighbor and see someone who is generations before them worshiping God. And that is a beautiful testimony to them of who God is. We teach them. We demonstrate to them what it means to serve the body as well as the community by actively participating in the work of the church. We get our hands dirty with the kids in service projects and feeding the homeless and ministering to the lost. We invite them to be a part of it. We teach them. We pray and we encourage the parents so they struggle through the different phases of the child's life. Having toddlers is a lot different than having teenagers. You know, I have young kids. I love the stage that my kids are in. But working with parents who have teenagers, I'm starting to get a little scared. And part of assisting me whenever my kids become teenagers, yes, I'm a pastor, yes, I know scripture, but I still need your support. I need your help. I need you to invest in the lives of my kids. The same way that you need Tim and I to invest in the lives of your kids. That is how we assist parents. You see, brothers and sisters, this is not a vow that, that comes and goes when a child reaches adulthood. Nor does this vow that we take have an expiration date on it or a retirement date for those who are serving in ministry to these kids. This is the vow that we take, and we take this vow, and we carry it, and we do it, and we continue to do it in serving the church until we go to be with Jesus. Because we take it serious, this passage where it says to teach and to train our kids diligently in the faith. It is a lifelong commitment to see that all future generations that come through those doors come to know Jesus. It takes a lot of suffering. It takes a lot of sacrifice. But I promise you, when you step in that nursery and you see those little kids want to run around and hug you, love on you, you get to tell them about Jesus. That is beautiful. And they will remember that. Don't raise your hands, but I bet some of you today, you have a Sunday school teacher, you have a VBS teacher, you have a nursery director, someone who has spoke into your life, who has spoke Jesus into your life. I imagine someone here today, I imagine you know that person. You know that person that shared Jesus with you. You know that teacher that spent time with you. You know it. And think what you are to those kids now. When they grow up and think of so-and-so taught me Jesus in third grade. And I still remember the illustrations that she used. This is no way an exhaustive list of ways of assisting parents. This is just a sample. 
But what I want you to see, Covenant Presbyterian Church, is that we are called to come alongside parents and to help them teach and train their children in the faith. It's a big role. It's a big responsibility. But I promise you, it brings you great joy. So as we look at Deuteronomy 5, 32-39, we can see that if we're not careful, we can easily come away with a sense of disappointment and discouragement. My goal this morning is not to discourage you or to dis- disappoint you, okay? But I know that some of you may feel that um, disappointed because you can't live up to God's standards. You look at the law laid out here and you think, wow, how am I ever going to be able to do all that the Lord commanded me? Maybe you're discouraged because you struggle with doing family devotions or personal devotions or communicating the gospel with little kids like me. Ever, I confused my kid about Baptists believing in Jesus. It could be discouraging. Or maybe some of you are just discouraged with life altogether. My encouragement to you is this. I think it's my encouragement to you every time I preach to run to Jesus. You will never obey God perfectly, but Jesus did on your behalf. For Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. You will never be the perfect parent, child, or church member, but Jesus was on your behalf. For Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It is given that all of our lives will be filled with ups and downs, mountaintops and valleys. But Jesus tells us to take his yoke upon us. Lean on him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. And in him we will find rest for our souls. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we look in your word, especially as we study the law, we can easily get wrapped up in the do's and don'ts and begin to become discouraged. But Father, I pray that this morning that we will not that instead we will look to Jesus and in Jesus knowing that he has fulfilled all that you have required. And Father, that we can rest in him for our imperfections. We can rest in him when we fail to obey. We can rest in him whenever we suffer in life. Lord, help us to run to him. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.